From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, divorcing form from function in glaucoma. There is actually a remarkable amount of discordance in the agreement between the the, the so-called structural change and the functional change. First this. As Seen From Here is committed to the dissemination of information free of industry bias, Dr. Chohan declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As Seen From Here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. We pride ourselves in our nuanced understanding of glaucoma, which defines the pathology without reference to intraocular pressure. But our understanding is not nearly nuanced enough. For example, we contend that observable damage to the optic nerve results in visual field loss. Indeed, the optic nerve damage need not be so gross as to be observable to result in a substantial field change. But the patient who presents with measurable optic nerve head damage without accompanying visual field loss challenges our very model of glaucoma as a pathology. We recognize that we do not have a handle on the relationship between intraocular pressure and glaucomatous neuropathy. But I don't even have a handle on the relationship between structural nerve damage and visual field loss. I don't. But Balwantri Chohan does. Balwantri Chuhan, welcome to a scene from here. The dogma is that glaucoma is a progressive optic neuropathy with associated characteristic visual field changes. I want to dwell on the word associated. Prior to your study, to what extent were the signs of a structural optic neuropathy and visual field defects really demonstrably associated? Well, I think, that, I think that's a very interesting question. I think the clinical, the clinical dogma certainly has been uh, that, that these two um, sort of cardinal signs of the disease go, go hand in hand. Uh, and uh, certainly if you look at the, the, um, you know, the classic textbooks on glaucoma, uh, that's, that's what's been cited. But actually, if you look carefully at the evidence base um, to support that statement, um, it has been actually remarkably poor. And... Um, so really, in the last um, 10, maybe 15 years, uh, there have been numerous longitudinal studies which have um, tried to sort of address this issue. And this has been done both from the, from the randomized clinical trials, you know, that, 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 that have been published in the last 10 years in glaucoma, plus, uh, you know, in sort of uh, university hospital-based um, uh, um, you know, studies such as ours and, and, and such as others in many other uh, different labs uh, all over the world. And when we actually look carefully at the relationship between the two, um, there is actually a remarkable amount of discordance in the agreement between the, the, the so-called structural change and the functional change. 
And um, so, uh, and you know, we've published this, and several other groups have published this as well. Uh, so um, it appears that within the sort of lifespan of a typical clinical study, which is a prospective study on glaucoma, so the you know, duration of up to 10 years, um, the relationship appears to be actually not as good as we had previously believed. Even to the extent that a relationship between structural neuropathy and visual field loss had been demonstrated, did these two parameters march in step? Uh, again, I think the answer um, is, is probably not um, not as strongly as we had previously thought. L- let me just give you, give you an example. We, you know, we, we typically measure um, progression as an event. So, you know, we, we, we typically make a binary decision and say, well, you know what, um, the visual field has changed at this point, or the optic disc has changed at this point. And this is a binary decision, which is, an, which is called an event-based decision. Uh, and that's, that's typically done on the basis of some form of a statistical analysis. Now, um, you know, one can sort of count the number of progressive events that occur with the, structure, with the, with the optic disc and with the visual field, and one can try to correlate that. But one of the assumptions that we're making is that one step uh, or one event in the optic disc actually is equivalent to one event in the visual field. And that's, I think it's rather naive to think that that's the case. Um, and also, um, you know, the, the issue of which happens first, um, it, it's also very naive to think that, you know, just because the optic disc change occurs first within the clinical follow-up of a patient and then the visual field change occurs, well, we don't really know um, that that particular um, visual field change is a result of that optic disc change, or it may have been a result of an optic disc change much, much earlier on, or in fact that a optic disc change may occur after that visual field change. <laughs> so, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to relate these events to each other where we actually have very little evidence that, in fact, you know, one event with one technique is actually related to the other event with the other technique. So the way we try to sort of um, get over this problem is to try to measure rates. And, and, and so we say, well, is the rate of visual field decline correlated um, to the rate of optic disc decline, whether it's a, um, you know, a rim area or whether it's a um, you know, a cup volume change or something like that. And other groups, including us, uh, ourselves, uh, plus, you know, um, many other groups have now published, and even that relationship doesn't appear to be as clear as we previously thought. So when you do an event-based analysis where, you know, one event occurs as some sort of statistical threshold that the changes, you know, uh, exceeded what uh, one would expect, you know, um, to, to be within the variability limits, that doesn't appear to be uh, related. And when you actually look at a rate of change, a rate of visual field decline or a rate of neuroretinal rim decline, uh, that doesn't appear to be as well correlated as we'd previously thought. That's a great point. What question did your study seek to answer? Well, we, we had a, we, you know, we, we'd done previous work on the sort of association between one and the other. We, we sort of wanted to get away from that type of question, and, and our question was very specific. You know, as you know, we, we have a lot of new imaging devices now in ophthalmology. Uh, we have them in retina, we have them in glaucoma, and, and one of the, the sort of uh, most sort of mature of these new techniques is scanning laser tomography, which is, which is the HRT. And um, one of the questions that um, is frequently asked um, by clinicians is that when you see an optic disc change, 
with this technique uh, in patients with ocular hypertension or in patients who have established glaucoma, what does it actually mean? You know, what, what are the consequences of that change? People are um, uh, perhaps uh, more ready to accept that if you have an optic disc change that's recorded by conventional photography or disc photography or by clinical exam, um, one may think, okay, you know, I'm, I'm more, more, uh, I'm more prepared to believe this because you know it's a technique that I'm aware of and I know. So, so the question is, when you detect a change with the HRT, is this something that's real, or is it a false positive change? And the, really, the way to to answer that question is to see, well, fine, let's record this change and see what sort of functional consequence of that change is. So essentially what we did is we, we have a cohort um, here in Halifax that we've been following actually since the early 90s uh, using this technique. And we essentially um, divided the patient's follow-up into two. And we monitored the patients until um, they showed an optic disc change. And then essentially we um, then divided our sample into patients who did show an optic disc change and those that didn't show an optic disc change. And then we looked to see whether those that did have an optic disc change had a higher rate or a higher incidence of visual field progression compared to those that did not have an optic disc change. So that was basically the crux of the question. So we could directly answer the question and say, well, you know, if you have a visual, if you have an optic disc change, then you are so much more times more likely to have a visual field change as a result of that optic disc change. And that's really what the study meant to answer. Val, how did you handle data collection? Well, this is, uh, this is what's called a non-interventional study. Um, the physicians who are looking after these patients are not mandated to treat the patients in any specific way. So in other words, um, we, we, we do not have the ability really to talk about um, you know, whether certain treatment types are better than others and so on. So that, that's not really the primary purpose. The purpose is really to look at the sort of relationship between these two types of change. So, so because we've been collecting this data prospectively, um, we simply took, um, you know, uh, let's, suppose, let's suppose that a patient has um, 10 years of follow-up. Um, we decided really to divide the follow-up into, into two different ways. Um, in, in, the first, um, in the first method, what we did is we followed the patient for just the first three years for optic disc change, and then we divided the sample into those that had an optic disc change and those that did not have an optic disc change. And then we looked at the subsequent visual field progression for the remainder of the seven years. And the second way of, of dividing the follow-up was to take an individual patient and to divide the follow-up in exactly half. So, you know, if a patient had 16 years of follow-up, then the follow-up was divided into eight to look for optic disc changes within the eight years and then visual field change for the subsequent eight years. Uh, or if it was a follow-up of 12 years, then it would be six and six. So basically that's how we divided up the study. So we, we looked at two different initial follow-up periods uh, with the HRT, and then we looked at the remainder of the follow-up for the subsequent visual field changes. Bal, can I get you to describe the TCA of the Heidelberg retinal tomogram, and what is meant by liberal, moderate, and conservative change analyses? Okay, well, the TCA um, stands for topographical change analysis, and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's some software uh, that's um, uh, been developed by, by the company based on um, some research that we had done previously, uh, and, and we've worked fairly closely with the company to incorporate the software um, into their devices. And essentially, it's an event-based um, technique where um, it shows the clinician um, the magnitude and the significance of optic disc change 
uh, of a given examination compared to a baseline. So in other words, um, you know, the baseline uh, set of examinations um, uh, is recorded, and then subsequent examinations, whether it's every six months or whether it's every three months or, or whatever the, the uh, frequency interval is, uh, each follow-up examination is compared to the baseline. And the software will um, basically flag areas if there's a repeatable amount of change uh, in the optic disk. So that's, that's, that's based not just on the amount of change, but it's based on the statistical significance of that change and the depth of that change. And that depth of, that, depth of the change is in microns from baseline. Now, uh, the three different criteria, uh, one, of the, one of the really important things in, in glaucoma is that unfortunately we don't have a gold standard. We, we, we don't have a standard to say, you know what, um, this means that the patient has absolutely changed. Um, so, so what we have to do is we have to employ um, sort of different criteria so we can have um, a liberal criterion, which is a criterion that would be very, very sensitive um, to the earliest change. But because it's liberal, um, it, uh, it's also going to have a, a higher proportion of false positive changes. And on the other end of the spectrum, um, we can have a very conservative criterion, which demands really a very large change um, for it to be significant. Um, so the advantage of that is that the false positives will be really quite low, but the disadvantage could be that the sensitivity could also be um, low. So, so you know, it's a, it's so, so you have a sliding scale of cutoffs, right? And because we don't have a gold standard, we can't say that you know um, the absolute truth is when you have this amount of change, you have a glaucomatous progression. Well, that doesn't really exist in glaucoma. So we have to employ this sort of sliding scale. So we essentially looked at these three criteria. Um, for optic disc change in the initial follow-up period. And then, you know, for each of these different sets of criteria, we looked to see uh, whether there was a difference in patients who did show a change versus those that didn't show a change. Bal, what is the GPA, the glaucoma progression analysis, of the Humphrey Visual Field Machine? This is, uh, this is something that we had used uh, in this program. And, and the GPA is what was used in the early manifest glaucoma trial, uh, which was really a sort of... Um, a, um, one of the, the sort of landmark studies in glaucoma um, that looked at uh, treatment versus non-treatment in newly diagnosed glaucoma. And essentially, this software, um, um, again, is an event-based um, uh, analysis where you have a baseline visual field, and then essentially you compare a follow-up examination to this baseline. And what the software does is it flags points in the visual field that it thinks have changed. And the criterion that's employed um, is to have three points in the visual field that have changed uh, on three consecutive examinations. Um, so when that happens, the software will automatically flag the visual field and say that the progression has likely occurred. So that's, that's commercially available on the Humphrey device. How did you compare these two sets of data? Well, uh, essentially, so if we... Um, uh, let, let's take the situation where we um, follow the patient um, you know, for initial period. So we've then separated our groups into those that have shown an optic disc change in the initial follow-up period and those that don't have uh, an optic disc change. So basically, we've got two, two sets of data. So then we want to then look to see what is the difference uh, between these two groups in the subsequent incidence of visual field progression uh, and in the subsequent rate of visual field change between the two. So when we talk about incidence of visual field change, we do what's typically um, called, a, called a survival analysis where you um, have a criterion for progression and you follow the patient and you, um, 
you then um, uh, make the decision that the patient has progressed uh, and, uh, and the patient has not progressed. And you basically have two groups that are stratified to whether they have optic change in the initial follow-up for those that don't. And then you look at the average um, survival time of the two groups in a subsequent follow-up period. So this is, this is typically done in any sort of progression study, any study that compares, for example, two diff different treatment groups. Um, so, you know, you do a, a Kaplan-Meier survival analysis and you extract statistics from that, uh, such as the significance between the two different groups uh, and also, you know, the average time um, of survival between the two different groups. Bal, what were your findings? What were your results? Well, our, our, our major findings were um, that Generally speaking, um, patients who showed optic disc change in the initial follow-up period um, had a, a higher incidence of visual fuel progression uh, than those that did not show the optic disc change. I mean, that, that really is um, the study in a nutshell. Um, however, um, we also um, uh, employed um, several sort of control experiments um, you know, one of the things we also wanted to know is that actually is the visual field change in the initial follow-up period um, predictive of a subsequent visual field change in the follow-up? So, so, you know, so now what we're doing is we're looking at whether the optic disc or the visual field is more predictive of subsequent visual field change. And it's not surprising that, the, that a prior visual field change obviously is much more predictive of a subsequent visual field change compared to an optic disc change, and, and, and we were able to show that. Um, but but we, we, we did show, and, and, and we used something called a likelihood ratio to, um, to see um, how powerful uh, of a predictor the visual field was. And uh, we showed that you know, patients who had subsequent field progression uh, were up to three times as likely to have shown optic disc change uh, in the initial follow-up period compared to those um, that did not show it. Uh, and so that, that, that to us was a fairly um, powerful indicator um, that, you know, an optic disc change in the initial follow-up period was, was predictive of subsequent visual field change. So that there was actually a functional consequence of that, um, that optic disc change. I just want to make a, a, a comment here. You say that it's obvious that patients who had prior visual field changes are at greater risk for future visual field changes as opposed to patients who had structural changes to the optic nerve wall. You know, it's not obvious to, to me. The classical teaching is, is that visual field changes, the, the, the detection of changes in visual fields is more sensitive than uh, sort of seeing gross changes to the optic nerve. And that if you see detectable changes to the optic nerve, uh, that, that they represent such and an enormous loss that you would see gross changes on the visual field. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, I, I think again there is a sort of there's a clinical dogma that suggests that, right? But again, the, the sort of evidence base. You know, at the end of the day, we need to be able to measure uh, these things and make sure that we have the, the sort of um, the scientific evidence to support those statements. Um, the reason that I wasn't terribly surprised um, to, to find that you know, prior visual field change was much more predictive of subsequent visual field change than an optic disc change um, was simply because of this sort of um, dissociation between these two things that I talked to you about. Uh, you know, ultimately, structural change and visual field change do have to correlate. I mean, if you follow the patient long enough from, you know, if we could follow them from the time that, you know, 
um, they were born to the time that they die and they develop glaucoma. And if we follow them that long, you know, the rates surely will be correlated. I think one of the problems is that, um, you know, because we the clinical um, studies uh, have a relatively short duration compared to the disease duration in the patient, and there's a lot of noise in the measurements, and, and therefore these things, you know, tend to be dissociated. Um, so, so within the lifespan of the study, um, it made sense to us that, you know, um, you know, if, if you if you have one tech, you have one index of disease progression, uh, that's probably going to be more correlated. Um, you know, if you follow the patient subsequently with that same technique than if you have a different technique. So, um, I, I, I I personally wasn't wasn't surprised to find that. Um, um, but but you know, again, um, if we follow the patients for much longer, if we had a 20-year follow-up or a 30-year follow-up, I think it would have been interesting to revisit this question again. Your data show that prior field loss is a better predictor of future field loss than prior disc change, structural change. Is it that disc damage does not correlate well with visual field loss, or is it that the effect of disc damage is simply not contemporaneous with visual field loss? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think it. I think it is the latter for sure, and, and certainly the. Um, uh, you know, our previous studies uh, from our group and from other other groups uh, have shown that one one tries to do a, 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 a contemporaneous, uh, um, um, you know, uh, analysis of the two things. Uh, you know, that there is a dissociation between the between the two things. I think that, um, as I said, ultimately, I think that they would correlate. But if you can imagine, you know, if you have two measurements that, um, you know, in reality are correlated to each other. But if you, you know, add things like measurement noise to the equation and if you add the fact that, you know, the, the changes may be occurring um, slow, more slowly with one technique compared to the other technique at this particular point in time, then, then that relationship, you know, is less likely to be strong. So I, 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 I actually, um, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that, um, that, that one can sort of, I mean, we, we, we really don't have... Um, the evidence to suggest that you know it's it's one or the other, but I I would suggest that simply within the sort of time frame that we're following the patients, uh, that the relationship isn't is not very strong between these two indicators. Val, you make an interesting comment in the paper that visual field progression in study patients generally is slower than in non-study patients. Why is this true? And how does this influence your findings? Yeah, that's a really, uh, you know, that's a very intriguing finding. Um, that, that there is uh, uh, one paper in the literature, as far as I'm aware of, uh, which was published in the archives, which I, which I have cited in that paper, um, where they looked at uh, visual field progression in patients who were enrolled in a study uh, compared to those that were simply clinical patients that were just having a routine follow-up uh, without being in a study. And I think there's very good evidence um, uh, from that study, at least, that those that those patients that were in studies had a lower progression rate. And and one can um, speculate as to why that might be. Um, that the first thing is that patients who uh, consent to be inv- involved in research studies are probably a subset of the general population of the clinical population who probably are patients who are more compliant with with their disease and how it's managed. And I don't mean compliant just in terms of taking their medications, but compliant in terms of uh, keeping their appointments and, you know, making sure that, you know, um, they have the fields done and their optic is done and so on. Um, and 
And I think the fact that they know that they're in a research study and that they are being monitored carefully uh, would probably, um, uh, you know, would be an incentive for them to actually, um, you know, comply to all the, the things that go on with their care. Um, and, you know, that w- it would not surprise me um, uh, that these patients are also compliant with their therapy, uh, more compliant with their therapy, rather, and that the progression rates are lower. Um, one of the things that's really quite striking um, about our rates of visual field progression compared to some of the previously published ones is that our rates are remarkably low of visual field change. Uh, and and we at first thought that, well, there's, there's got to be something wrong with this data, but, you know, we've explored it in many different ways. We've looked at rates of visual field change and of optic disc change, and, and, and these rates are actually lower than what's been published previously. Uh, the difference between this study and others is that the others have been sort of retrospective um, chart reviews where patients have not been enrolled in studies and the progression rates tend to be high. So I think that, um, you know, I, I, would, I would probably speculate that these are patients, this is a subset of patients um, who, you know, are more aware of their disease and they probably look after themselves a lot better. And it could also be a subset of patients who, because of study criteria, have been enrolled so that their risk profile may be such that their progression rates aren't likely to be high. Um, one of the things that we had wanted at the beginning of the study is that the patients had you know, early to moderate loss, that, you know, um, that they had to have a mean deviation that was less than minus 10 decibels and so on. So that selection in itself um, may render these patients to have lower progression rates. So it's a variety of issues, you know. But I think, uh, you know, being, uh, being in a study would probably force them to be more, uh, more compliant uh, and, and, and the management of their disease. Knowing what you know now, what do you do in your own practice? Do you put more stock in one set of data, HRT or visual field, than the other? Well, uh, that's a very difficult um, question. Um, and and, I, and I'll, 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 um, I'll attempt to answer that by saying that, you know, at the end of the day, it really depends on what you as a clinician uh, um, put faith in. If you feel um, that, you know, you can manage your patients and your clinical decisions better on the basis of an optic disc change as opposed to a visual field change, then I think uh, that's fine and and you should continue to do that. But at the end of the day, I think what matters is that um, whatever examination you decide to do, you should really do it with with a high frequency. Um, So in other words, you know, you should probably do the test that you use to make clinical decisions and not do tests simply to collect data. You know, one, one of the questions um, that, that I'm asked frequently is that, you know, for, let, let's just go to visual field tests, for example. You know, there are a lot of uh, tests like frequency doubling perimetry and blue on yellow perimetry and so on. And the question is, well, should, should I continue to do these in my practice? And, and the answer really, I think, is, is you know, do you, do you use those techniques to actually make any clinical decisions? And, and if you don't, uh, then I would suggest that you're probably better off doing more tests that you uh, use to make clinical decisions with. So, you know, if you're doing one test per year of three different techniques, but you're really only using one technique to make your clinical decisions, you're probably better off doing three of the same tests so that you've got much better information. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's an important point. And, and the other um, uh, uh, way I'd like to answer this question is that um, it's, so it's important to drive clinical decisions based on the sort of functional um, consequence of the, uh, for the patient. 
um, you know, remember that um, the, the, the really only functional consequence that we can measure in the clinic is, is, is a visual field change or a visual acuity change. You know, when, when, when the patient loses, um, you know, um, a little bit of rim tissue, the patient's not going to say to you, oh, you know, I've noticed that I've lost a bit of rim tissue. They, they won't say that. What they will say is that if they've lost a bit more of the visual field, particularly if it's in the center, uh, that's symptomatic, and that's a, that's a real functional change. So it would make sense that, you know, clinical decisions, um, you know, are made on the basis of, of things that are most directly affecting the patients. But that doesn't mean that you can ignore optic disc changes. You know, I mean, I think both things are very, very important. Bell, is progression, progression regardless of whether it is of the disc or of the visual field and is an indicator of therapeutic inadequacy to be managed identically in either case? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a, a really tough question, and I'm not sure um, I can answer that. I mean, you know, they, they um, are, um, the, the studies that we've seen, uh, you know, in the recent uh, uh, decade or so uh, have really shown that there are patients who uh, progress in spite of having successfully uh, managed intraocular pressures, you know. The, um, the normal tension glaucoma study has shown that. Uh, the EMGT study has shown that. Several other studies have shown that, in spite of having, um, you know, um, quite low intraocular pressures, um, some patients still continue to progress. So there's something about their disease um, that's, you know, rendering them uh, to progress. Um, and and yet, on the other hand, there are others who. Um, you know, appear not to progress, uh, you know, even untreated. So, uh, as you know, the early manifest glaucoma trial um, randomized newly diagnosed patients to uh, treatment or to no treatment, and a substantial proportion of patients um, who were randomized to no treatment and who were running pressures that you you would not obviously leave untreated simply because they've got um, uh, visual field damage and optic disc change, but they're randomized uh, to observation only, uh, did not progress. Um, so, so, um, so, so really, um, whether they progress or don't progress obviously has to do with the adequacy of therapy, but that's not the only um, criterion because as these studies have shown, um, patients will progress at any level of intraocular pressure or, on the other hand, remain stable at any level of intraocular pressure. Uh, but since um, intraocular pressure is the only thing that we can treat today, um, you know, obviously the intraocular pressure must be reduced as safely as possible. Uh, but clearly, um, uh, I, I don't think that one can conclude that just because a patient um, progresses, uh, that's a result of inadequate pressure reduction. Balwantri Chauhan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking with you, and thank you very much for your interest. Balwantri Chauhan is professor and director of research in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. His paper Incidents and Rates of Visual Field Progression After Longitudinally Measured Optic Disc Change in Glaucoma appears in the June 2009 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Chohan or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm...
Josh Young.